0: Good morning and
1: welcome to Beyond the Headlines. We're your hosts, Erin Christensen and Taya Koper. This week, we will be discussing
2: climate change and federalism. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you, Beyond the Headlines, of our daily news, bringing you access to our current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at Beyond the underscore Headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Today, we're focusing on Canadian climate policy and federalism. In this episode, we sit down with climate policy thought leaders to discuss how Canada's regional differences and increasing political polarization may hinder strong climate action at the federal level. Our first interview is with Dr. Douglas MacDonald, who discusses the tension between Canadian federalism and climate policy. He then suggests a way forward to achieve federal and provincial
1: consensus on national climate policy that reflects regional divides. For our next guest, Dr. Catherine Harrison joins us to talk about what's next for climate policy after the election and addresses mounting friction between Western Canada and Ottawa. Finally, Dr. Andrew Leach weighs in on Alberta's newly announced provincial carbon tax and advises how Canada can position itself for success in a low-carbon, resource-efficient global economy. Our first guest is Senior Lecturer Emeritus with the School of the
2: Environment at the University of Toronto, Professor Douglas MacDonald. His forthcoming book, Carbon Province, Hydro Province, The Challenge of Canadian Energy and Climate Federalism, provides analysis and recommendations for how Canada can address its basic climate change problem, the fact that continually rising emissions in the oil-producing provinces are overwhelming reductions made in other parts of the country. So thank you very much, Professor McDonald, for joining us here today in studio.
0: You're welcome. I'm pleased to be here.
2: <laughs> so um, to get started, my first question to you is... I know that you have a new book coming out soon.
0: That's right.
2: And so the new book is called Carbon Province, Hydro Province, The Challenge of Energy and Climate Federalism. I was wondering if you could just explain briefly what you mean by the term energy and climate federalism.
0: Yes, I'd be happy to. I can also explain the terms uh, carbon province and hydro province. (laughs) Those refer to the oil-producing parts of the country, carbon provinces, and hydro province is... uh, primarily the central Canadian provinces of Ontario and Quebec, that don't produce oil. Federalism, of course, as you know and as all your listeners will know, is a system in which you have two levels of government, and both are guaranteed constitutional rights to govern. In some instances, they're each able to govern in their own separate spheres, and we don't have a problem. But in many others, they have to work together to develop national programs. And so the terms energy and climate refer energy primarily to fossil fuels, which are, of course, the source of the climate change problem. Fossil fuels are located primarily in western Canada, also offshore in Newfoundland. And then climate change is how can we reduce our emissions given the fact that we have this federated system.
2: Mm-hmm. No, I, and I think most people, maybe they aren't aware that um, in the Canadian federal structure, both the federal government and the provincial governments are completely on equal, equal ground. They just have different jurisdictional uh, authorities.
0: Yes, they uh, particularly for this is what these court cases are, are all about, but it seems very clear. Certainly in the area of environment, they have what's called shared jurisdiction. They both mm have constitutional powers to to govern, and most people expect that the Supreme Court will affirm the federal government's uh, jurisdictional power. So you're absolutely right. They have equal powers, they both have a right to govern, and so they have to find ways to cooperate.
2: Which makes it difficult to put forward a national Canadian climate policy strategy when the the assumption there is that all the provinces are are agreeing.
0: Yes, uh, that's the challenge. And particularly from the energy part of the equation, you have very different interests. The energy-producing provinces make money out of producing oil and gas And they use considerable energy to do that, and they contribute to the climate change problem.
3: Mm -hmm. Other
0: parts of the country, like Ontario and Quebec or most of the other Atlantic provinces, don't have that interest. So you've got Mm -hmm. fundamental difference in interests that have to get sorted out in this very weak system of governance that we have. For national programs, the federal and provincial governments all sit around a table, but they never vote. It has to be consensual Mm decision-making. That drives decisions down to the lowest common denominator because any government can opt out at any time. And so if the other governments want to keep them there, they have to accede to their requests. So it's one of the worst possible decision-making processes you could use, but it's the only one we have for these very important issues having to do with energy and climate change.
2: So so just to get a little bit more into your book that's coming up, what are some of the key questions that, that you addressed and that guided your research as you were writing it?
0: This is based on research I've done now for almost a decade, and I've been pulling the results of that together in this one book. The central question is, why is it that we have set three different targets? We, the first one was set in 1990, then another one in 1997, then another one in 2010 to be achieved by the year 2020. We've set these three targets and we've blown past all of them. We've missed all of them. So what are we doing wrong and how could we do things differently? And in Exploring that question, I focus on what I see as the basic challenge with Canadian, the Canadian situation with climate change, which is that the country is going down two different policy tracks. In some parts of the country, because of action by provincial governments like Ontario phasing out coal, Quebec signing up with California in the cap and trade program, Nova Scotia using law to require reductions from its major electricity utility. We have seen significant decreases in emissions over the last 10 or 15 years. But in other parts of the country, most notably Alberta and Saskatchewan, we see emissions have increased throughout that period. And the policy is that they will continue to increase until 2030, which is our next target date. So... The basic challenge Canada faces is the fact that we're going down these two different tracks and how can we change things around so that all parts of the country are going down the track of decreasing emissions. And so to get at that question, what I do in the book is look at the five times to date that we've attempted to put together national, federal, provincial programs in the areas of energy and climate change. And those go back to the National Energy Program of Pierre Trudeau in 1980, up to Justin Trudeau's pan-Canadian framework that was signed in 2016.
2: Okay. In what ways do you think that the outcome of the election will, will affect Canadian climate policy and, and coming to some sort of consensus on that I th- front?
0: I think it will have have uh, very definitely an effect upon Canadian climate policy. We saw in this election something which is very unusual in Canada. An environmental issue was top of mind for voters. Climate change was the issue that people kept coming back to, and that's very, very rare in Canada. And then the outcome of the election was that some two-thirds of the people voting voted for parties, the Liberal Party and the other minority parties, which are promising to do even more on climate than we are now. Yeah. So you had a very clear message coming out from a lot of people, we want to see more action. But then the, in Alberta and Saskatchewan, these provinces which I'm suggesting need to change policy direction, you had overwhelming votes for the Conservative Party, which ran on a policy of doing less about climate than we are now. And now in the post-election discourse, it is all being framed as an issue of national unity. The Alberta Premier is not the least bit apologetic about the fact that his province is free-riding on the actions of other provinces. He's not saying, gee, I realize we need to change, but you gotta give us a little more time and we really will make an effort. Instead, he's demanding policies both new pipelines and changes to the federal regulatory system for approving interprovincial pipelines, which will allow even more emissions. And so we're back in one of the major fault lines of Canadian Confederation, the Mm West-East divide and Western alienation. Western alienation is something which is real and which is understandable. The Western provinces have historically been exploited by central Canada. This was John A. MacDonald's national policy. Let's put in a tariff so that the manufacturing industries in Ontario and Quebec can sell their products without meeting American competition, which meant the Western farmers had to pay more to buy their tractors. Mm. Yeah. So it's a very real and understandable sense, but once you mix national unity, Canada's had so much trouble putting in place effective climate policy anyway, and now it just got a lot harder.
2: Is there even a possibility of a compromise for you know meeting the demand of action on climate policy and the demand for more pipelines? Like, how do you and
0: the demand of keeping the country whole, keeping yeah. the country together? You
2: know, <laughs> you're right. You can't please everyone. So how how do you how do you square that?
0: I've got an answer because (laughs) I've been thinking about it for some time in, in my book. The way that we have, we've been trying to develop climate change policy in Canada since 1990, since Brian Mulroney set the first target. Basically, what we've done is to solve this problem that you're putting on the table, that Canadians have on the table, by not bringing in effective policy, by missing our targets. So the question is, how could we start to actually hit a target, to have Canadian emissions as a whole reducing well, we hold the country together. And my basic argument is that what we need to do is to negotiate a burden-sharing agreement. We need to follow the lead of the European Union, which has done this a couple of times now. We have to say to achieve a given total reduction there are going to be differing costs. The Western provinces have higher per capita reduction costs because of the carbon intensiveness of their economies. So we need to recognize that and we need to convene a new federal provincial negotiating process, which instead of doing what we've always done in the past, which is to have the federal government go off into international meetings and to then come up with another Canadian target and then to come back to the Canadian provinces and say, this is the target, now we have to talk about how to meet it. What I'm suggesting is we start by bringing everybody together and saying, well, what can we do? And we say to somebody like Jason Kenney, Kenney isn't saying climate change doesn't exist. He's not saying his province won't act on it. So we say to him, okay, we call your bluff to, to a certain extent. What are you willing to do? Mm-hmm. And we say to Doug Ford, what are you willing to do? And then how can we find a way that the costs are kept roughly equal, even though the actual effort might not be the same in all the different <coughs> provinces?
2: Because I think a lot of people will are assuming that they point they point fingers easily and, and argue that policymakers and politicians you know how can they ignore the evidence how can they ignore the climate crisis i think just as you said it's not that these these people these politicians are are unaware of the issue it's just that they're in a specific situation and they're facing different constraints than other provinces so it's about how to go about negotiating instead of this top down approach like bringing everyone to the table and is that what you're getting at kind of that's exactly assessing. what your
0: use of the phrase not a top down approach is exactly my message. It has to be collaborative federalism. The federal government has to see itself working with equal partners. It has to accept the fact that it's this consensual decision-making process that any of those partners can opt out. So this is the challenge. It means real skill is required for the federal government to both use a little bit of tough love to use threats, something like Justin Trudeau's carbon tax—the threat, gee, we could come in ourselves, all by ourselves, Ottawa, and put in place an even higher tax. There's the threat. But also to use a promise of, can we help you? Can we give you money uh, to help you with your reductions? And also this notion that we're all in this together, trying to negotiate a solution. Mm-hmm. Now. The weakness in the argument I'm putting forth is that I'm saying that they should take the time that's necessary, if it takes a year of many, many meetings, many negotiating sessions, to accept that. But I'm also saying we need to reopen the 2030 target. And if we do go into this process, Alberta and Saskatchewan are going to be pushing for a weaker target. Mm -hmm. And the process, because there's no majority voting, is consensual, it leads to lowest common denominator. So what The federal government needs to be doing everything it can with tough love and promises to get them to do more. But I'm saying at the end of the day, we need to accept the fact that we might end up with a target which is not as ambitious. So
2: we need to set our expectations lower, basically, for for what's... Yes.
0: Now, all my environmentalist friends don't like the fact that I'm saying this Mm -hmm. because they don't like the idea, completely understandably, of weakening a target. But my argument is these targets have been meaningless. We keep setting these targets, and then we all keep ignoring them. Let's have a target that all parts of the country are committed to because they had a say in hmm. setting the target.
2: Increasing the input legitimacy exactly. of, of the, you know, of the stakeholders, of who's it, of the key actors that are involved. Because if, you know, if these people feel um, like their voices aren't being heard, that they're not being reflected in, in the policy being put forth, then of course there's going to be this increased, increasing sense of alienation.
0: And you used the phrase input legitimacy? Yeah. Yes, that's a, that's a very good phrase. That's exactly it. Uh, everybody has to feel that both the process is legitimate and then the final uh, outcome is legitimate. Yeah. When I was doing research a few years ago, I went out to Alberta, I was interviewing government officials there, and I was talking to them about our target, our meaning the Canadian mm-hmm. target. And they looked at me and they said, it's not our target. Alberta never set that target. That's Ottawa's target. Yeah. That's their problem. And so because of the process that had been used, it didn't have legitimacy in their eyes. Yeah. And therefore, they didn't feel that they had to really do anything. Yeah.
2: It's also maybe difficult for, um, is it possible that Ottawa is, he feels constrained or feels the pressure to set these higher targets because of the time constraint that they have? You know, they're, they're limited... To towards a three or four year mandate, there's a preference there for short term political gains over what's needed, which is yes. long term climate policies.
0: Yes, yes. Between now and 2030, the target date, we're going to see a number of elections. Uh, but you're absolutely right that governments are focused on the short term mm-hmm. and on the next election. And that unfortunately leads them to often fall into the trap of putting in place symbolic policy, which gives the appearance. Of effective action and lets us all feel good about ourselves and that's what Canada has been doing up until now. But something has changed. We've never come out of an election with this many people wanting to see more action. Things are changing worldwide. I mean Greta Thunberg yeah. is just inspiring a wor- a so many people.
2: In the past few months it's just exploded. It's it been has. An exponential growth of, of popular support. And, and
0: so this means all countries have to wrestle with their own particular problems. Canada has to wrestle with its basic fault line of the split between the West and the East that goes way back, as I say, Mm -hmm. John A. Macdonald contributed to this. The West has not been dealt with fairly. It's completely understandable that they should feel the way they do, just as it's understandable that people in Quebec should want to live in a distinct society. Mm -hmm. So the Canadian genius to date has been to find ways of keeping us living together while letting us live Mm -hmm. in our separate ways. But that is really put to the test right now.
2: It's easy to stay in your in your little bubble, you know, <laughs> because Canada is such a large, diverse country. It's, it's vast geographically. It's vast in terms of its you know, in terms of its population and, and the different the cultural diversity, so rich. But it's easy for people to lose sight and to be out of touch with other Canadians throughout the country. Yes,
0: absolutely. And this is what I suggest in my book, that we need a new national dialogue. We need to be talking to one another mm-hmm. more, but we have to avoid one of finger-pointing and casting blame. How can we do this together? And I'm suggesting that this concept of burden-sharing, instead of starting the dialogue with, well, we just set another target, now what are we going to do about it? Instead, we say, how can we make the sharing of the costs more equal so that everybody will feel that they are being dealt with fairly and therefore will feel that it's a legitimate process and a legitimate outcome?
2: Thank you very much. I think that's a good place to leave off. Thank you for coming in um, and, and sharing your time with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you very
0: much for inviting me. I've enjoyed the time with you. Thank you.
1: Once again, that was Professor Douglas MacDonald. Climate change and climate policy were key issues in the recent federal election, and two-thirds of Canadians chose to move forward with a progressive climate agenda. However, the voters in carbon-intensive provincial economies, namely Alberta and Saskatchewan, did not vote this way, giving rise to exciting conversations on the dynamic between federalism and climate change. To provide some insight into all this, I'm very excited to introduce our next guest, Dr. Catherine Harrison, who is a professor of political science at the University of British Columbia and expert on the topics of environmental, climate, and energy policy, as well as federalism and comparative public policy. Welcome to the show, Dr. Harrison. Thank you. So, since the dust has settled and Canada has a liberal minority government, what does this mean for our climate policy agenda moving forward?
4: You know, I think the most important thing is that existing policies that were adopted by um, the federal government in the previous term have survived. And and that's important because it's the first time we've actually seen meaningful policies that have the potential to reduce Canada's greenhouse gas emissions adopted at the federal level. So those include a regulation to phase out coal-fired power, um, clean fuel standard, which is still under development, um, methane regulation, and um, most notoriously, the carbon price. And so those policies um, have survived the election. Uh, some of them would have been rolled back had the Conservatives won, um, um, certainly a majority and probably a minority government. And although they're not as stringent as we need, um, I think they they are adjustable. They provide a good foundation going forward, Um And I think also the the results indicate that a liberal minority government, if if they seek to move towards more ambitious climate policy, will have um, sufficient support from the NDP, the Greens, and um, the Bloc Québécois with um, some provisos there concerning Quebec's autonomy.
1: Okay, so the liberal minority government uh, received a strong signal that climate change is an important issue for the Canadian electorate at large. But the prairies and Alberta signaled some resistance. What do you make of that resistance?
4: Well, I think that, it's, first off, it wasn't a surprise because Alberta, and Saskatchewan, have voted overwhelmingly conservative for a very long time now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the Liberal vote did go down, but there wasn't any expectation of the, the Liberals winning a bunch of seats there in the first place. I do think that climate change represents a particular challenge for Canada. Partly it's just that we have a very carbon-intensive economy, uh, and that means we're one of the countries that needs to change the most. And that also means that a lot of existing industries have to change and a lot of existing norms for average Canadians are going to have to change. But on top of that, the fact that fossil fuels are unevenly distributed in this country and um, means that there are certain regions that stand to be uh, impacted in a bigger way by the transition away from fossil fuels. And in a federal system such as ours, they have provincial governments looking out for them and provincial governments that own the oil. So um, I think it's inevitable that there would be clashes between those regions and those provincial governments and a federal government as Canada moves forward to reduce its emissions. And I suspect we're going to see things get worse before they get better.
1: Given the global shift to a low-carbon future, do you think that this is just the beginning of immense friction between Western Canada and Ottawa?
4: You know, I do. Um, I think that, and, and it will depend, um, in part it could depend on what happens in other countries because most of the fossil fuels that Canada produces are being produced for export so we export over eighty percent of the oil Mm -hmm. that we produce what that means is that our oil and gas industry is especially vulnerable to the policies that are being made in response to climate change in destination countries to the extent that the countries to which we plan to export our fossil fuels start um, reducing their consumption the market for canada's production will be hit, and will probably be hit especially hard because we produce relatively high-carbon oil. So, you know, much depends on external pressure on the Canadian economy, but what we're seeing already is that those regions, Alberta and Saskatchewan in particular, that in recent years have been hard hit by low global oil prices, are looking for someone to blame, and it's a tried-and-true strategy. for provincial governments to blame the federal government and so I think it's possible especially when you've got different parties in power federally and provincially that we'll see more of that and also that thus far the kinds of policies that Canada has been adopting to reduce our own emissions um, haven't bitten (laughs) they haven't hit hard at the uh, the oil and gas industry Um, They've gone after emissions from electricity generation and and transportation. And thus far, they haven't really affected the bottom line of the oil industry. I think even to meet our Paris Agreement target for 2030, let alone to go beyond, that's going to have to change. And when we start strengthening the ambition or raising the price on carbon um, in this country we will see even more pushback Mm -hmm. from those industries and the provinces that tend to represent
1: them. Right. So that might indicate a hole in our uh, national policy agenda on climate change and kind of bring it back to that. I noticed in your recent paper on federalism and climate policy innovation, you discussed Mm -hmm. the degree to which federalism can facilitate or deter policy innovation and diffusion. Can you talk about this a little bit more?
4: Sure. One of
1: the long-standing debates about federalism,
4: um, and it's, it's true with respect to the environment and climate change as well, is whether it's better to have central policies that ensure you know, consistent environmental quality for everyone across the country, have the potential to... Um, treat like industries alike, regardless of where they're located, so that there isn't competition and pressure that, you know, will move um, to another province if you regulate us. So, you know, there's arguments for federal authority. And then there's also arguments that leaving it, you know, a decentralized approach that leaves environmental policy making to provinces or, in the U.S. case, the states, allows for more innovation. It's like letting a 1,000 flowers bloom and some provinces will come up with new ways of doing things and they'll learn from each other. And, you know, in some cases they'll coordinate, in other cases they'll just act independently. Um, In practice, I think, and and there's been a lot of enthusiasm about that in the last 10, 15 years, um, I think what people haven't noticed so much is that the provinces and that have been innovating in the case of climate change in the u.s california new york massachusetts um, in canada british columbia and Mm -hmm. quebec have been the provinces and states that already have relatively low carbon economies the rest of the provinces haven't been following their lead and if anything have been resisting so you know, there's been a handful of provinces and states that have done some really cool, innovative things, and I applaud that. But I don't see that spreading across either Canada or the U.S. in the absence of a federal, com- federal government coming in and setting a minimum floor for the entire country. And that's why, in the Canadian context, I think the, the federal government's approach of um, requiring a minimum carbon price across all Canadian provinces was especially important.
1: So I just want to touch a little bit more on what you're talking about there on the innovative capacity of diffusion as well as that relationship between the federal government and provincial governments kind of coordinating or potentially coordinating on environmental policy. Do you think that there's an opportunity for the federal government to collaborate with municipalities to address the climate crisis and potentially skip over um, those provincial governments that might not be wanting to move forward on progressive climate change?
4: I mean, yes and no. Um, Municipal governments don't exist in Canada's constitution. They are creatures of provincial governments, and to the extent they have authority, it is authority that has been delegated to them by provincial governments. Um, that said, there are certain characteristic things that um, municipalities are responsible for, and certain and they, there are certain things that they're going to need to do in order to address climate change. So something like um, strengthening transit systems, building out transit, um, installing more... Uh, Charging networks for electric vehicles, and those are things that are are expensive, and where I see that there would be potential for the federal government to contribute financially, um, and that even you know typically even when a provincial government is sensitive or opposed to federal intervention in one area, they tend to welcome federal money mm-hmm. um, for projects that they think are a good ideas. So I think there's there's potential for the federal government ideally working with the province and the the local community to um, contribute financially to major capital projects like extending subway lines, um, that sort of thing. Um, But I don't see the federal government sort of directly pushing local governments to regulate major sources. That's going to be a federal-provincial matter going forward, inevitably.
1: Other than federalism... Do you think that there are constraints or institutional roadblocks that may prevent us from achieving our Paris target or even effectively implementing the pan-Canadian framework on clean growth and climate change?
4: I mean, I think the really the most fundamental challenge in Canada isn't federalism, although I think federalism is also a challenge. Um, The fundamental challenge is that we depend heavily on fossil fuels you know we were just lucky um, to be endowed with all kinds of fossil fuels and we've taken advantage of them both in um, creating very carbon intensive manufacturing sectors that depend on cheap energy um, in building cities and lifestyles that rely on fossil fuels people live in relatively big houses and commute relatively long distances, typically in single-occupancy vehicles in many cities. So, you know, we have a carbon-intensive economy, and we have particular regions that are particularly um, carbon-intensive. The per capita carbon emissions in Alberta and Saskatchewan are, you know, six to seven times what they are in Quebec. Wow. And that's just because that's where the fossil fuels are. There are no countries in the world with carbon emissions per person as high as they are Mm -hmm. in Alberta and Saskatchewan. So that's the real challenge that we face. But I think federalism makes it harder because the provincial governments own those fossil fuels. They own the natural resources in almost all cases. And they're also very defensive of their their local economies, understandably so. Uh, But because of that... I think one of the challenges we've got is that Canadians just love the idea of everybody getting along. They want their governments to get along. They want the federal government and provinces to come to consensus. But, you know, maybe we should let go of the idea of consensus, that the goal is to solve the climate crisis. The goal is for Canada to... um, comply with its international agreements. The goal is for Canada to transition our economy. And it may be that in some respects that's going to need to be done without consensus Mm -hmm. over the objections of certain provinces that are simply not, that, that want to obstruct what is otherwise um, an important national project with the support of a majority of Canadians.
1: And that's exactly what gives rise to that Alberta separatist rhetoric that we're hearing now a little bit more, that kind of idea of maybe there doesn't need to be a consensus and we need to move forward on climate change, and then you do have those voices from Alberta that that are really not interested in being a part of that transition.
4: Right, Um, although separatism is just a bizarre threat
1: Um, And I think we have to stop taking it
4: seriously (laughs) because (laughs) it's ridiculous. If Albertans concern is an inability to get their oil to the coast, becoming a separate landlocked country is not going to help. So it's not a credible threat. I do think we need to take more seriously and start having a real and long overdue conversation about, What does it mean for Canada, and especially uh, the provinces that have been heavily reliant to transition away from an economy that's so dependent on fossil fuel production? You know, how are we going to support those communities that are inevitably going to need to undergo a transition? How are we going to retrain workers and move training into new sectors? You know, how are we going to start planning for a wind down of our fossil fuel industry i mean i think that's the conversation that we need to be having about oil we've started that in the case of coal um, and i think it's overdue that's that's the conversation we need to be having rather than pretending that it's a serious option for alberta to secede from the country
1: certainly a conversation that we need to start having. Uh, And for my last question, I'd I'd like to ask you, if you were to advise Canadian policymakers working on the climate change file, is there any specific policy avenue or innovative angle that could be explored a little bit more?
4: Canada has committed to reduce our emissions to 30% below 2005 levels by 2030, and we know that our existing plan is not going to get us there well, we anticipate our projections are that there will be a significant shortfall. So the immediate task is to figure out how we're going to close that gap, but also to do even more, because we know that the current Paris Agreement commitments um, that were put on the table in in, uh, 2015 by Canada and other countries put us more on a 3 to 3.5 C climate change trajectory. So the immediate task is to adjust existing policies, to keep what we've got and do more. Um, you know, I think we're going to need to increase the carbon price beyond $50 per ton. I understand why governments have been reluctant to do that. Um, I think one very promising commitment that the Liberals made in the most um, the recent election was that they would introduce legislation to establish binding targets for every five-year period, with independent advice on um, both what those targets should be, but also on um, the efficacy of policies to meet them, so that there there's a transparency in calling out governments on what's actually going to work, what's not going to work, whether we're on track. And I think that will be very important for whomever is governing in the future, whichever party, because it gives them some expert cover. Canadians say they want to be part of the Paris Agreement process. We're vulnerable economically for international action on climate change anyway. Um, So what does that mean for us? What do we need to do? So I think that's um, likely to be the important next step. And I think as part of that process, we need to start talking about things like, you know, given increasing levels of um, global commitment on climate change under the Paris Agreement process, what are the implications of that for Canada's bitumen exports? Um, because we we have a gap between governments saying that they embrace a 2 C world and even 1.5 the limitations on climate change and at the same time expanding production of Canada's bitumen when modeling exercises have shown that if the world is really serious about limiting climate change to those levels, Canada's exports would disappear almost overnight.
1: Okay, so we're looking for more policy advice and more Ambition,
4: Right. And more attention to, as part of that, as we start looking at different futures for the Canadian oil and gas industry under different scenarios, part of that discussion needs to be how do we support um, individuals and communities in that economic transition.
1: That's fabulous advice. So I don't want to take up any more of your time today, but thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights with us. You're very welcome. Once again, that was Dr. Katherine Harrison. Our next guest is Dr. Andrew Leach. Dr. Leach is an energy and environmental economist and is associate professor at the Alberta School of Business at the University of Alberta. His research spans energy and environmental economics with a particular interest in climate change policies. In 2015, Leach was chair of Alberta's Climate Change Leadership Panel. Good morning, Dr. Leach. Thank you very much for joining us today. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So on today's episode, we've been discussing climate change and Canadian federalism, which is a paradox that involves growing tension around Alberta's fossil fuel industry. Can you tell me more about what exactly is going on right now from a political economy standpoint?
3: a big question. Uh, I think what, what you're seeing right now is, is a combination of things. Number one, the country as a whole wrestling with what it's role is in reducing emissions, how fast, when, how, uh, with what policy tools. And then a sense where, at least in the provinces that are more dependent on fossil fuels in in general, and I think oil and gas in particular, uh, a feeling that you're you're almost being blamed for it, that it's, this is Alberta's problem or Alberta and Saskatchewan's problem to solve and just take care of it and, and sort of it should be easy. And I think... Some of that response is, of course, ca- causing a backlash here in Alberta.
1: We've seen from Alberta's Premier Jason Kenney talking a lot about wanting powers similar to Quebec to increase control that Alberta has over what's going on within the province. What are the prospects of that?
3: I don't really think so. I, you know, I think Premier Kenney is talking about a lot of different things in terms of you know whether it's the so-called referendum on equalization, uh, whether it's talking about Canada Pension Plan, etc., I don't think those things really provide the leverage that he's imagining that they provide. I mean, if, if Alberta holds a, a referendum on does Alberta like the current equalization formula, that doesn't really change anything. We, I think federal politicians already know that Alberta doesn't particularly like equalization. Equalization is a federal program. There's nothing that changes if Alberta holds a referendum on it. If Alberta controls its own pension plan, you know, the Canada pension plan is self-funding. So would there be more, fewer dollars going to the CPPIB if Alberta had its own? Sure. But is Canada going to change the nature of its federal policies to prevent that from happening? I'm not, I I don't think it is. And then, of course, are Albertans who have just felt the the pain and are still feeling the pain of a downturn in a non-diversified economy? Are they going to buy into something that says, I've seen some some people saying, if if we had our own pension plan, we could invest it here or closer to home. That's sort of a doubling down on exactly what we've uh, we've seen so far, rather than diversification. So I'm not sure that Albertans are, are going to benefit from that or, or are going to see it positively.
1: Could you tell me a little bit more about equalization?
3: I think where Premier Kenny comes from in, in this is he's He's essentially cobbled together some pieces from the Supreme Court reference on Quebec secession, which asks, essentially, we don't have a process in the Constitution to deal with the possibility of Quebec secession. How do we deal with this? In particular, you know, this is more than just a traditional constitutional amendment. We have a constitutional amendment formula, but Quebec's not a signatory to that. So Premier Kenny's taken a piece of that, which basically says, if Quebec held a referendum on a clear question and the response was that a clear majority wanted to secede from Canada that that would would necessitate negotiations on on the federal government's part to make that happen or at least to set the terms for for such a a secession. and Premier Kenney's taken that and said that basically if Alberta holds a referendum on equalization it would have the same type of power to force the federal government into some sort of negotiation on equalization and the equalization formula. And and I think there's a couple of pieces that are missing there. Number one, the formula itself is not a piece of the Constitution. In the Constitution, we have a clause that stipulates that the federal government shall have an equalization system that makes comparable levels of public service achievable for all provinces at comparable levels of taxation. It doesn't say how you do that and the federal government implements that through a spending program. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to change the Constitution, you need far more than a single province in the federal government to do that, and, and we have a constitutional amending formula. If you want to change the formula for equalization, that's a federal government decision that is traditionally negotiated with all the provinces. So there really isn't a, you know, essentially it's a means of having a campaign around getting Albertans angry about the transfers that are the net fiscal outflow from Alberta, if you want to put it that way, uh, to the federal government and this is just another means of stirring that anger. It doesn't really have any constitutional standing.
1: Right. I think there is a little bit of confusion right now around equalization, so thank you for clarifying that a little
3: bit. I think that's the intention, create
1: confusion. We saw the Liberals' campaign, which included their commitment to eliminate fossil fuel subsidies by 2025. What does this mean for the oil and gas industry?
3: You know, the, the question of fossil fuel subsidies is one that, uh, we talk about confusing subjects, you know, what is a fossil fuel subsidy and and what isn't? You know, historically, yes, there have been some pretty significant special treatments afforded from the federal government, but that most of those have been rolled back, starting with the, the budgets in, in the Harper era, and continued under Prime Minister Trudeau. What remains is at least a perception that Alberta and some of the other provinces have some very generous fiscal policy. So they effectively charge less for the oil and gas or provide... Incentives for companies to produce oil and gas over and above what they would provide for producing other products, toothbrushes, for example. Mm-hmm. So we don't have a, a special fiscal credit program for toothbrush factories. We do have one in Alberta for producing propane derivatives, so polypropylenes, etc., from propane. We have a, a special subsidy program, and so when when you look at all of those. There are a lot of what we would call subsidies for, for oil and gas in that sense that don't have exact mirrors elsewhere. You know, the, the other one that, of course, got a lot of attention during the election campaign was the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Is the federal purchase of the Trans Mountain Pipeline a subsidy? You know, It's certainly a treatment that was not available to every other industry in the country, it certainly kept the expansion moving when it probably otherwise wouldn't have. But I don't think you can look at it and say it's a four and a half billion dollar subsidy because the federal government also got a very valuable capital asset and something that they're almost certainly going to be able to sell for more than what they paid for it. You know, that's, it, it's a gray area and one where I think people are imagining there are sort of bags of money being thrown to the oil and gas industry that we could take and throw it another industry. Really, we're seeing is credits that are, you know, taxes that are not being paid at the same rates as other industries, in some cases they're higher, in some cases they're lower. And if you change that treatment, you change investment a little bit, and you potentially free up some tax room that you could use in other ways.
1: On the flip side of the subsidies, Jason Kenney recently announced a 30 per 10 carbon tax on large industrial emitters. What's the message that this policy sends?
3: I think it sends a number of, of messages. So, so the first thing is, you know, he, this is basically the third version of a relatively similar policy, right? In, in, in Alberta since 2007, we've had carbon pricing on industrial emitters. And they've always been essentially a two-part policy. You get some emissions credit per unit output you produce at some rate, which we'll talk about in a sec. And then you have to pay a price on your emissions. And that price initially was 15 bucks a ton. And facilities got emissions credit basically in proportion to their historic emissions intensity. So if you were a higher emitting firm, you get more free credits per barrel of oil produced or per unit of electricity or what have you. And you'd pay $15 a ton if you were emitting over the number of emissions credits that you got. The NDP government under Notley, a program that I helped design change that a little bit to say uh, you're going to get emissions credits based on the product you produce. So everyone producing electricity gets the same number of credits. Everyone producing oil gets the same number of credits per unit of electricity or per barrel of, of crude. And then you pay a carbon tax. So that's you know better for the high performing facilities, worse for the low performing facilities. Premier Notley also raised the price to $30 a ton. And what Premier Kenny's done is said, we're going to keep most of the, the structure of the plan that's been in place since 2007, we're going to change back to giving facilities more emissions credits based on their historic emissions. So if you're a, an oil sands facility with higher emissions intensity, now you're going to get more free credits than you did under the Notley plan. If you're a low-performing, like low-emissions facility, you're going to get fewer free credits in some cases than you did under the Notley plan. And so it's basically redistributing, in a sense, the, the allocation of free emissions credit and giving out a few more of them overall. So giving out more credits um, and giving out giving them out to different firms. Isn't something that is, you know, the free credit sounds terrible and, and people say, oh, well, why are they doing that? Remember that every emissions trading system in the world, the European system, the California system, etc., has some level, or most of them, I should say, have some level of, Free credits, a lot of them given out based on you know your historic production or your historic emissions or what have you. So this isn't necessarily something that's that's specific to Alberta. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Kenny plan, it's a continuation of the old, It's a little bit better for for high emitters. But the last thing I'll say on that, one of the things that's really important in it is it's also very stringent on electricity. So it's more stringent, for example, than than Prime Minister Trudeau's carbon policy on electricity. And that's really important in Alberta, where we still have a lot of fossil fuel-powered electricity. So keeping that was a big, big step forward. And I think people probably would be, you know, a lot of your listeners are going to be surprised to say, you know, who has the more stringent policy? Whose policy would lead to a faster phase-out of coal power, Premier Jason Kenney or Prime Minister Trudeau? And the way they're on paper today, it's it's premier Kenny's that would lead to the faster phase of the coal.
1: Hmm. That's fascinating. Would you say that this policy is strictly on emissions policy? Could you maybe make an argument that it's a step in the right direction towards diversifying the economy?
3: I think diversifying the economy is always a loaded term. So the more you, you know, putting a price on, on emissions is generally going to push you towards either within a sector, lower emitting technologies, overall in your economy towards uh, lower emitting industries. The change from Premier Notley's to Premier Kenny's policy essentially it is a transfer to higher emitting facilities. So if you're a higher emitting oil sands facility, you're going to be all else equal, more profitable under Kenny's plan than, uh, than under Notley's plan. If You're a you know the, the best in class facility. you're probably better off under Notley's plan than under Kenny's plan. So in that sense it cuts away from from what you say is diversification. The other side of it is again, you're still talking about pricing carbon. You can't paint this as, a, as as an abdication of the overall push towards lower emissions. It's just relative to what was in place in 2015 to 2018. It probably steps back.
1: For my last question, I would like to know what you would say to Albertans who see big projects like Trans Mountain or just the oil and gas industry in general as an icon for their identity and their in their economy as we're transitioning to a low-carbon world.
3: I think it's dangerous for people to imagine that, that Trans Mountain is the savior of all of the, the things that have harmed Alberta over the last five years, right? It's, it's not going to bring the average revenue or the the average viability of oil sands projects up as much as what the change in the oil market pushed them down. So I, I think that's dangerous. But I actually think the other side of it is worse. I would say, you know, if you look at, in some ways, the conversations that we've been having in this country in terms of action on climate change, that there are a lot of people who would be willing to give up a lot of action on climate change, on things like coal-fired power, on things like economy-wide carbon pricing, et cetera, in in return for opposing a single pipeline. And I I think you end up at, at the end of a road where There are a few big projects where you can step in and say, yes, we should do this, or no, we shouldn't do this. But at the end of the day, climate changes and and carbon emissions are so integrated in our economy that you need these broad policies that affect sort of a lot of what we do. We can't just be in sort of a mode of saying this project is okay, this project isn't, this project is okay, this project isn't, and expect that that's going to solve our emissions challenge or the climate change problem in general. So I think I'd flip your question and say, you know, to the people who've made it such a symbol of, you know, this is your litmus test for do you care about climate change or not? I, I think there are a hundred bigger questions. And and so I'd get away from the pipeline conversation and think of a broader policy.
1: Okay, well, let's leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode and sharing your expertise with our listeners.
3: Oh, thanks for having me.
1: Once again, that was Dr. Andrew Leach. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines. Many thanks to our guests for joining us to discuss climate change and federalism. Today's show was produced by myself, Erin Christensen, Taya Koper, and Vienna Vendatelli.
2: The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with the policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at Beyond underscore Headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore Headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.